Now we want to move on to the reading and proclaiming of God's word. And sometimes God's word gives voice to our sorrow and suffering. Uh, sometimes it provides us comfort and encouragement. And sometimes God's word punches us in the mouth. This passage this morning is meant to punch us in the mouth. So let's make sure we're awake to hear it. Listen carefully as I read James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, uh, even when it uh, makes us uncomfortable. Uh, we pray that you would help us to apply this word to our lives this morning and in the days and weeks to come. Uh, we need the assistance of your Holy Spirit uh, that we would hear and believe and that we would be changed and transformed. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to be present with us now as I proclaim and as we hear this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, when we lived in Palo Alto, uh, one of my friends up there who was going to Grace uh, in, in Palo Alto, uh, he was a really uh, handy and do-it-yourself type. He was roasting his own coffee, and it was totally awesome. He was using one of these old popcorn poppers, the air poppers that I grew up with, uh, and, and he said, you know, they're not made anymore, but you can find them on eBay, you buy them, and then you uh, make a small internal adjustment with them, and they turn into great coffee roasters. So I had him buy me one, and, and he fixed it up for me, and, and he showed me how to do it. We had to roast outside because the husks would fly up, and I remember we had to buy this long extension cord uh, to get uh, power from the front of our apartment building uh, to the back. How many times did I roast coffee? Exactly once. Then it sat on a shelf for a long time until we finally gave the popper to another friend for roasting. For some reason, my wife Erin brings up the coffee roaster a lot and my lack of using it. Maybe because we still have this long extension cord that we have no use for. I'm sure I've done stuff like this many, many times. Buy something, acquire something, learn something with every intention of doing it or using it, and then it never happens. Can you relate it all to that in your life? What James says here is that you can read or hear the word, the Bible. You can attend worship. You can do these things regularly, and it can have the same impact on your life as a coffee roaster collecting dust on a shelf. It is possible to be a hearer only of God's word and not a doer. And non-Christians who are listening are like, duh, I know lots of Christians who don't seem to do what Jesus says. And of course, for people who have negative feelings toward Christianity, they often cite Christian hypocrites as a major cause. If you're a non-Christian who feels this way, 
Hopefully seeing Christian hypocrites called out by the Bible builds a little bit of trust and goodwill for you. And if you are a Christian, this might scare you a little. How do you know if you are not merely a hearer of the word, but a doer also? How much do you have to do to be a doer and not a hypocrite? Where does faith come into all this? And can't we just go back to Galatians or maybe Romans? The epistle of James is meant to disturb the comfortable Christian who feels at home in theology, but not so much in application. So the emphasis here in this passage is on application, doing. And we're going to look at doing under three headings. Why do, what to do, and how to do. Three headings, and the first is why do. The beginning and the end of this passage, they hit on the same themes which we will be addressing, but it's the middle of the passage that controls its meaning. And most scholars recognize this as the thesis statement for the whole book of James, chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James wants his people to be wholehearted, consistent followers of Jesus. You have to do, not just hear. In fact, James will write at the end of the next chapter that faith without works is dead. Dead faith. Hearing without doing is dead faith. But our church is steeped in the tradition and theology that salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. Our name is grace. Is James arguing against this? No. James isn't talking so much about how we are saved or what we're saved from. He's talking about what we are saved for. Why is God saving people? Paul says in Romans 8, God is saving people so that they might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, his son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. The triune God is restoring his image in us that we might enjoy full and uninterrupted fellowship with him for eternity. We begin to consciously participate in that process the moment we begin to have saving faith. We are invited and expected to participate in this process. As Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation. God's word is meant to stimulate and guide us and encourage us as we do that. Hearing God's word in faith will impact you. That's what James is talking about. And if there is no impact, if there is no doing, then you aren't hearing in faith. James uses the illustration of a mirror, verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It's an odd illustration for us because mirrors are everywhere nowadays. Some surveys suggest that we look at ourselves in the mirror up to 70 times a day. 70. So imagine if you saw me some evening and you noticed that I had some egg stuck in my beard. You might say, oh, you've just eaten some eggs. And I'd say, no, I, I, I had some eggs for breakfast. And you'd be perplexed because that would have meant that I went the whole day with some eggs stuck in my beard. I certainly would have looked at the mirror at some point. How could I have not gotten the egg out of my beard? That's what James is talking about. In the ancient world, you didn't have as many mirrors. They weren't as clear. You weren't always looking at yourself. So it meant that when you did see your face, it was valuable information that you needed to act on. 
God's word and the gospel proclamation based upon it is good news for us to respond to, to act on. If we just hear it and we don't act upon it, it's like forgetting to wipe the egg off your beard that you just saw in the mirror. It doesn't make any sense. So this sounds like something none of us would ever do, but if James is warning his people about this, certainly we need to be warned about it as well. One of the problems is we forget. Some people listening to this, they start every morning with scripture and prayer. And for you all who do that, how easy is it, less than an hour into the day, to forget how the day started? People who are dead set, wanting to remember God's word, still forget it throughout the day, myself included. Why? Because other needs and agendas intrude. Other things take higher priority. And that's for the committed. Others of us seem to be relying on osmosis. I'm sure you remember being in school, studying for a test, you're reading a textbook, and maybe you rest your head on it, and you simply wish you could learn by osmosis. That the information would somehow magically transfer from the book to your head, and you'd be able to access it when needed. Some of us, perhaps unknowingly, are approaching Christian maturity that way. I'll go to church, I'll read the Bible, somehow, someway, God's word will get in me and change me and grow out of me. James is saying, don't be deceived. That's not how it works. You won't grow and mature by osmosis. Instead, in verse 25, James writes, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This term, perfect law, it's simply another word James uses for scripture or the word of God. It's the law of liberty because it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The one who looks, hears, perseveres, remembers it. The word I like is persists, persists in that word. That one will be blessed in his doing. You want to see God work in your life? You want to see him use you for good in the world around you? Apply his word. Don't just hear it, do it. If God's word and his gospel isn't important enough for you to persist in and apply to your heart and mind, then perhaps it's because it hasn't saved you. Salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith does not remain alone. That's, we are, that's why we are not to simply hear the word, but to do it also. Now, do what, though? Right? Simply apply the word can be pretty nebulous, and James is certainly not nebulous. He's happy to tell you what to do. So that's our second point, what to do. James begins and ends the passage with the same subjects. We can boil this down to three basic headings, desires and appetites, compassion, and anger. I see James talking about desires and appetites when he writes to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness in verse 21, and keep oneself unstained from the world in verse 27. Just previously, uh, we saw last week in the passage how our desires lead us into sin. And later in the book, he'll equate covetousness with friendship with the world. So this is the question. Do you covet and desire the way the world does in pursuing and protecting wealth and status? consuming things and consuming people. How might God's word apply 
in your specific situation to how you work and use money, how you eat and drink, how you look at other people and sex? Are you trying to apply God's word to these areas? Every few months, it seems, some celebrity pastor has some kind of public failure. Recently, it was a man named Carl Lentz of Hillsong in Manhattan. He was caught up in celebrity culture, and he had all kinds of moral failures. One journalist in a conservative magazine wrote this about it. I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And that sadly appears to have been true of Lentz and his celebrity acquaintances. Are you finding yourself being conformed more to the world or more to God's word? This is what James is trying to get at. He is asking us hard questions, and he wants to make us uncomfortable. How about compassion? James says in verse 27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father at least starts with visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. The word religion here, it means worship, liturgy, faith, and ritual. These are good words. Everyone uses ritual and liturgy, whether they're secular or people of faith. James isn't against these things. What is a problem for James is if your religion remains stuck in church on Sunday mornings or in your Bible study or your quiet times. James here is talking about going out to live for a story greater than ourselves. In the ancient times, orphans and widows were the stock category for the powerless, the vulnerable. People had no defenders, no one to speak for them. What are you doing for them? James is asking. This is the heart of our religion, since, of course, Jesus came and visited us in our affliction of our sin and suffering and death. Does God's word move you to love mercy and do justice for the orphan and the widow, the marginal and oppressed? For us in our time, it isn't only an issue of power. It's also an issue of suffering. In our culture, we are terrified of real suffering. We don't know how to help people who are suffering, and we don't want to be around people who are suffering. James is asking if we are visiting hurting people in their affliction. When all they know is darkness, when there is nothing to do or say that can really help, we don't want to be inconvenienced, we don't want to feel powerless and awkward, and we don't want to be reminded that suffering is coming for us too. True religion is walking out of our dreams into other people's nightmares. Is God's word shaping you to do that? All right, how about anger? Verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then verse 26 at the end. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart... This person's religion is worthless. James is broadly talking about how we speak and use words, but specifically he is addressing anger, and it will come up again in his letter. Anger was obviously a problem for his recipients, and I would say it's obviously a problem for us as well. James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But isn't there such a thing as holy, righteous anger? Indeed, there is. 
These people James is writing to, they were facing persecution, economic and class discrimination, and all the other run-of-the-mill daily conflicts of community. And James doesn't think that much of their anger is righteous. I would venture to say that the vast majority of our anger isn't righteous either. Listen, the anger of God produces the righteousness of God, not the anger of man. The anger of man only makes things worse. And most of the time, that's our kind of anger. Our culture is mostly wrapped up in the anger of man. Researchers have found what we all know to be true, that anger is an incredibly powerful emotion. Anger energizes us and pushes us to act. And because we are acting when we're angry, we're done with critical thinking. People ask less questions when they're angry, and they resort to stereotypes. And anger needs an object. When people are angry, they find someone or something to be angry at. This is how anger works in humans. And over the last few decades, the political and media elite have figured this out, and they've used it to reap billions of dollars. Anger works better than hope. Anger works better than empathy. Anger certainly works better than nuanced policy positions. Anger gets people to show up at rallies and protests. Anger gets people to the voting booth, and anger gets people to write checks. From the years 1999 to 2016, do you know the number one political word used most on Fox News? The number one word, Obama. And for the prime time slots, the top three words used in descending order, Obama, Clinton, Democrat. For the same time period, MSNBC, the number one word spoken, Republican. And in prime time slots, the top three words were Republican, Bush, and Trump. These shows are not talking about their own team. They're talking about the other team. Why? Because anger sells. Anger also draws clicks online, right? Because anger gets people to act. Articles that arouse anger get more shares and they go viral faster. The more you click and share out of anger, the more those kinds of articles fill your news feed. Tech companies don't want you angry. They just want you clicking and sharing. The algorithms do the rest. Anger is not a bug in our modern culture. It's a feature. It's baked in. Are you caught up in the anger of man? So, specifically, in these three areas, things that we could do this week in terms of desires, explore your approach to money and sensuality with your community group or friend or pastor, elder, women's care team member. Confess your sin and repent where you find yourself falling short. Ask for help and for people to walk with you. Start your day in prayer and the word with a few of us. Join our text thread. Before you open your email, look at the news or get to work on your list of to-dos. Connect with God. It's not magic, but it, it at least habituates your value that says God thing, God's things are more important than the world's things. You can get your coffee started first if you need to. For compassion, we just had online meetings about all the compassion initiatives we're doing this winter and spring. Contact Deb Debbie Chang, our compassion coordinator. She's doing an incredible job. She can give you several things to try. You can get involved with seniors, hungry people, homeless people, foster kids this week. Anger, if you walk away angry from reading, watching, listening to the news, Get less news. 
Don't get your news from social media. However you inform yourself, be mindful that usually you're being sold something. The anger of man does not lead to the righteousness of God. And as you find yourself getting angry about anything, try to stop. Distance yourself from that emotion and ask, where is this leading? Is this leading to the righteousness of God? Now, these are just a few things in three broad categories. We could pile on more things to do, and we could pile on more categories. You could make a list of hundreds of things to do, informed by Scripture, and you could get better and better at doing them, and it still wouldn't be enough to make you righteous. We are not saved by doing. We do because we've been saved. If you've been saved, then do these things. Start. How? Well, that's my third and final point. How to do. James gives the answer in the second half of verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for us. This good news implanted in us by God himself, which saves us. We are called to simply receive it with meekness, which is another way of saying, have faith, entrust yourself to this. This is the same as what Jesus says about the seed of the word falling on different kinds of soils. The good soil receives the word and it bears fruit. Good soil is the person who hears the word rightly. Receiving the word with meekness means starting with repentance. God, I, I struggle with anger. God, I struggle with sensuality and friendship with the world. God, I struggle to show mercy to others. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the good news is God loves you, and he offered up his son to forgive you, and he puts his spirit in you to change you, to make you an eternally glorious being. Do you recognize that it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure? He intends to make something new of you, and that's what he has saved you for. So persist in this word. Linger over it. Remember it. Receive it deeper and deeper into your heart. What you need is not less sin. What you need is more grace. James will confirm that. And obedience follows more grace. So work God's word of grace deep into you. Apply it to your anger, your appetites, your self-centered agenda. God will begin changing you. I read a story the other day about uh, two friends, Andy and Gabe. Uh, they had been friends for a while, and they always wanted to see each other more. And so eventually in 2014, Gabe moved a mile and a half away from Andy. So they decided that once a week, they would walk toward each other, meet in the middle between their houses, and give each other a high five. Once a week. Now, sometimes they would stop and talk, sometimes they would shoot baskets, sometimes they were busy, and so they would walk past each other, turn around and stop, start walking home, and as they passed each other, they would high-five, maybe not even not looking at each other. And they further developed this ritual that as they approached each other, they would clap, then snap, then high-five. Every week for six years. And of course, that does amazing things for a friendship. This past spring... Gabe contracted a rare form of encephalitis. He lost his memory, and it's still only slowly coming back. Early on, Andy was staying with him one night in the hospital, and Andy asked Gabe, do you remember our high fives? Gabe said, no. Andy said, 
this is going to sound weird, but next time you get up to go to the bathroom, I want to high-five you on your way back. So a little time goes by. Gabe gets up, goes to the bathroom. Right? He has IVs on his right side, so he's going to have to high-five on his left. As they're walking back, Gabe approaches Andy, and out of nowhere, he claps, snaps, high-fives. He remembered, even though he couldn't recall. This is what James is talking about. Receiving the word deeply, practicing it, working it into your heart, persisting over it, and looking into God's perfect law of liberty, using it, applying it, doing it. As that happens, God changes us, and his love and his ways come out of us. When we only hear the word, forgetting it and not using it, we're holding it and God at bay. We're not going to really enjoy him or experience him, but when we use and apply the word, the gospel, we get it into us. We get into it, and it gets into us, and the blessing comes out. Jonah Berger is a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of Business at Penn, and he's one of these people who's done research on emotion and social media, and his research confirms the power of anger in the clicking and sharing of posts. But he said there's one emotion that outpaced anger in its ability to spread. And that emotion was awe. The feelings of wonder and excitement that come from encountering great beauty or knowledge. He says, awe gets our hearts racing and our blood pumping. This increases our desire for emotional connection. And it drives us to share. Awe. There's nothing awe-inspiring about a message that, keep, that you keep at arm's length and you forget about during the day and you don't really apply to your life. But when you receive the gospel, believe it and live it out, you find that God himself has planted it there, that he is saving you and transforming you by it. And as you persistently apply it, he shows up in your life and he proves himself faithful. The God of the universe, living and working in you, as you live and work by his word. The Apostle Paul says it's so amazing that it leads to fear and trembling. We might just say, awe. The gospel is more compelling than Silicon Valley success. It's more compelling than our anger, our appetites, and self-importance that consumes us. Receive God's word and do it. You will confirm it, and then you'll want to share it. Let's pray. God, we are grateful, again, for your word that you plant in us and save us by. We ask this morning that we would receive this good news with meekness and that we would cooperate with it, we would practice it, we would apply it, and we would find you working in and through us, that we would see blessing even when things don't go our way, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of hard things and failure, that we would see you show up because you are loving us and changing us and making us holy and glorious beings. We are so grateful for this good news. Please help us to live in it day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.